This is Alex Grant of the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Jim Thompson and I went to San Diego Comic-Con in 2019, and we worked on a few panels. This is one about the legal cease and desist system in comic books and how that can be used to change the narrative of the story. In this, we speak about Howard the Duck, Destroyer Duck, and Dave Sims Cerebus, all around the late 1970s and early 80s. Jim and I worked on this panel with Danny Bear and entertainment attorney Mark Greenberg. This was at the Comic Arts Conference in San Diego Comic-Con, presented by superhero genre expert and book author Peter Coogan. Out of the few panels we did, we found that this one was probably going to be the one that worked the best in podcast form. For first-time podcast listeners, please forgive us of the sound quality. This is different from our usual sound. This was recorded through microphones over at the panel, maximized as much as possible for this episode. To check out the other panels that we were a part of at San Diego Comic-Con, check out the Comic Book Historians YouTube channel, where you'll see one called Seduction of the Immigrant, about the Filipino and Spanish artists of the 1970s, as well as one on the sassy women of 1930s and 1940s golden age of comic books. And we will be returning next time with our usual formula. Take it away, Peter. Cheers. I'm going to mostly let do an Alex run the panel, but we'll take questions at the end. We're here to discuss what happens when the law enters the story. Jim? Hi. Are, you, are we introducing ourselves? Yes. yes. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm Jim Thompson. I taught genre theory for Duke University for 15 years, but I'm also a divorce lawyer. And uh, so after, if anybody needs anything. And <laughs> I also have, uh, Alex and I do the Comic Book Historians podcast and uh, the Facebook group with like 10,000 members. And um, I'll let Alex say more about that, but thanks for coming. I'm Daniel Bearer. I'm a partner with the law firm of Pollock, Vita & Bearer in Los Angeles. I've been practicing law for close to 30 years. I've been a comic book fan for much longer than that. This is my 30th consecutive San Diego Comic-Con. There's been a couple before that, so I'm very appreciative of the 50th anniversary of the, the 50th Comic-Con. It's not the 50th anniversary because there was two in one year. Lawyers care about that sort of thing. And I am not a comic book historian. I am a fan of comic book histories and am privileged to participate in the Comic Book Historians Facebook page. And I'm Alex Strand. Me and Jim run the uh, Comic Book Historians Facebook group. I run the Comic Book Historians YouTube channel, and we co-host the podcast together. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm Mark Greenberg. I'm a late add-on to today's panel. I'm a law professor at Golden Gate University School of Law in San Francisco, the founder of the IP Law program there, and I've also, I'm closing in on 40 years in practice, uh, most of which has been working in entertainment law. Uh, these days I represent a variety of comic artists and principally working on the transition of their works from uh, the comics to film and television. Okay, so let's start by looking at what a cease and desist letter is, and then we'll to the point of it. It's basically the simplest and cheapest way for you to get somebody to stop doing something that you don't want them to do. Without suing them, simply having a lawyer send a letter saying, cut it out. I wanted to, instead of opening with a joke, I wanted to open with a perfect example of a cease and desist letter, which would be Shia LaBeouf, when he, and I said not a joke, but of course I am making a joke here. Shia LaBeouf uh, did a film called, you know, 
howcantor.com, which it turned out, as people realized immediately, was actually almost word for word taken from a Daniel Klaus work. And then he uh, apologized by writing a tweet explaining all of this, except that turned out to also be plagiarism. It was taken from a Yahoo Answers page asking about Picasso. From there, it got worse. He, he went on and skywrote, I am sorry, Daniel Klaus, which didn't carry a whole lot of weight. And then he got angry about it and posted the storyboard for my next short is Daniel Boring, based upon David Boring by Klaus. And it's like Fassbender meets Half-Baked Nabokov on Gilligan's Island, which, of course, was taken word for word from how Daniel Klaus uh, described David Boring. That's where somebody finally says enough is enough and writes a cease and desist letter to his lawyer saying, you got to cut out the crazy, which, of course, he cannot do and instead put a bag over his head. And that's how it's supposed to work. What we're talking about today is not that. What we're going to be talking about is when cease and desist becomes change and disgust, when the lawyer sends the letter and actually becomes part of the, almost a co-creator to what happens next in the comic. Uh, not willingly, but, but nevertheless, he's an influence on the Aphrodite-Jesus, on the narrative. The first example, and probably the best example ever of that, would be the painting of Howard the Duck, which Alex is going to tell us about. So uh, Howard the Duck was created by Steve Gerber and Val Meyerick in 1973. So that's the panel on the left, and you can tell, you know, there are no pants, but he has a particular look to him that it doesn't look like other characters. But in 1976, Howard was redesigned by Frank Bruner to look more like Donald Duck. And so that characteristic becomes more obvious on that image on the right, on the, on the cover of Howard the Duck 1. So in the 70s, Disney comics didn't sell as well in the United States through Western publishing as they did through the 40s through 60s Dell comics that used to come out. Um, so there was probably less of a hunger for the more wholesome comics then. However, those Donald Duck comics sold really well in Europe still. And the problem was when those new Howard the Duck comics were coming out, there was brand confusion in the marketplace where people kind of, it was felt that people were confusing the two characters and that the Howard the Duck character was encroaching on the customer base for the Donald Duck comics. So the European division of Disney complained to the United States Disney legal department about this confusion in their, in their marketplace. And this happened in 1977. And so then Disney sends a cease and desist letter to Marvel with suggested redesigns of what Howard should look like. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, I would just point out, these are actually done by the Disney artist. It was included with the letter saying, this is how you should do it. Danny's now going to tell us what the, and unfortunately we did, could not find a copy of the actual letter that was written to Marvel, uh, just the pages that were attached. But Danny's going to talk about uh, the legal aspect of what a, such a cease and desist letter would be. And, and before he does, just to point out that they point out not just pants, but also eye color, the shape of the bill. They said, don't make his eyes blue, just make him brown from now on. So they were very specific about Howard overall. Well, cease and desist letters are generally the first contact between what you can call the superior user or the senior user, whoever the first 
owner of the copyright or trademark or other intellectual property is and the person who's allegedly infringing. And there's a few aspects of cease and desist letters that come in here. Now, this is a letter from Disney, which is as big a conglomerate as you can find in the entertainment world to Marvel, which at this point, before it was bought by Disney, was a pretty small outfit that the common thread they both had is both of their stocks and trade were intellectual property. They had to protect their copyrights and trademarks from one another. Here you've got the concept of a funny animal duck, a smart aleck one. That's not necessarily unique. Daffy Duck, there's nobody that confused Donald and Daffy. One of them speaks better than the other. But here you see Howard was getting closer to Donald Duck, who had had a big presence in comic books for the last the, the several decades before this. And in particular, the first story Frank Bruner did with the solo story with Howard, he had a tribute to Carl Barks. Now, Disney probably figured nobody knows, knows who Carl Barks is, and that's okay. But it was, as Alex said, it's getting closer. And when Howard's just a one-off character, that's not necessarily within Disney's purview. It just appears a couple times in Manfin comics. So what? If he's in a comic book series with him on the cover, that gets a little bit more serious. Now, cease and desist letters can tell somebody to just stop it. Stop using that or I'll sue you. They can also be an a prelude to a deal. You could say, well, you're using this character. Maybe we can work together. Maybe you want to keep using him. Just pay us. We'll, we'll license it to you. This is a unique situation where Disney is not saying, don't stop publishing Howard the Duck. They're saying, you can publish it, but we'd like to have a little bit more control over it so it doesn't edge over into people confusing it with Donald Duck. So we're going to redesign him for you. I don't know of another situation. There's probably other situations like this, but it, it's, it's just extraordinary to tell an outfit that lives by its images, Marvel, change the image so we don't see. And uh, does this have any influence? Well, first of all, it's Disney, so they can probably outfight anybody in court. They don't want this to get in court. But as you get more and more into having a comic book series of a character who looks a lot like Donald Duck, there is some danger there. So what happens once they get the directions is that John Romita says, okay, with no thought, no resistance at all, what Steve Gerber thought was completely cowardly and was furious about it. Uh, Steve Gerber is the writer of Howard Duck and creator of Howard Duck. But Romita and Reese Severin just issue memos saying, okay, from now on, draw it like this and presents the Disney pages. And that's what they're supposed to do. Steve Gerber doesn't go along with that very well. And in fact, in issue 21 in 1978, shortly thereafter, he writes a story putting the changes into effect and putting the, the pants on, but he makes it into, again, it becomes part of the narrative, but the narrative is that there's this evil uh, pressure group and the, uh, they're called the uh, Savior Offspring from Indecency, uh, Sufi. And Sufi wants to incorporate uh, Howard the Duck into the 
into being one of their allies for, for suppression, but first they need to have Howard uh, be blanderized. And they put Howard into this washing machine and it doesn't take. I mean, he does, it comes out, but then the final step, they put him in this washing machine and he's still not convinced and he, he rebels. And as you can see in the last panel, he takes his pants off and he walks away and he says, in that case, how do you just keep on trying and I'll just keep on resisting? And we'll both have a lot of cloudy days ahead. Wow. Now, <laughs> one thing that I don't know that you can see from the slides, but who Sufi turns out to be, it's a giant orange, and this is going to only be gotten by uh, older people in the audience, but this is actually Anita Bryant, and, and she's the villain in this as he cracks open her orange. <laughs> Now, some artists followed this pretty regularly, the new rules, and some um, attention to it at all. Uh, there's a, a better shot of the, uh, the orange being broken and Howard walking away at the end. Gerber didn't leave at that point, but Howard the Duck did. His magazine was canceled, his comic book was canceled about a year later and brought in as a, instead as a black and white magazine to get a more adult feel to it. Uh, Gerber was already long gone by this. Alex, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Well, so, well, uh, Gerber left Marvel. He was fired for not meeting deadlines. That was the official story. There was some discussion about uh, the new editor-in-chief at the time wanting to get rid of the writer-editor arrangement where the writer had total control over their books. So for, for a couple of those reasons, Gerber left uh, Marvel Comics and then uh, went over to work uh, with Hanna-Barbera Comics and, uh, and Thunder the Barbarian cartoons where he had some association with Jack Kirby and that starts off a whole interesting discussion where Jack Kirby also had his own adversarial relationship with Marvel Comics and they end up coming into a project together, a legal project, uh, a creative, legal creative project um, to, uh, to get Howard back from Marvel so Steve Gerber could control him again. But meanwhile, Bill Manlow is given control over Howard the Duck and writes, and he doesn't like this any better than Steve Gerber did in terms of the pants. And he writes this story where it's even more directed at Walt Disney itself. In that one, Howard and Beverly are hounded at the mall again by a demonstration for decency, but they, they find refuge in the offices of a Wally Sidney, which is Walt Disney, only switched around. Um, who actually persuades Howard to put on pants and makes an agreement. At the same time, around this time, Disney's had enough of this and sends a, a second letter and they reach an actual agreement. And a lot of Marvel people, unlike the first time, this time uh, the artist just thought it was a, a handshake kind of agreement, but there's actually a, a written agreement that says uh, in more detail how Howard is going to be portrayed. And the interesting part about it was it included that Marvel was precluded from redesigning the duck again in any way. It has to be the model that they had agreed on originally. Um, when Gerber came back in 2002 uh, to do a, a miniseries on Howard, he found this out for the first time because he wanted to do a different version of Howard the Duck. Anyway, what Howard, what Howard the Duck did, what Gerber did in that was he took the character and he said, well, if I can't change him as a duck, instead, 
I'm going to make him into a different animal entirely because Disney can't complain about that and that's not the agreement. So that eight issue miniseries in 2002 where in the very front cover, Howard turns into a mouse. Well, that's, again, it's an example of the, the, the way this has goes and becomes part of the narrative, but the narrative there is also basically to give a middle finger to Disney by turning Howard into actually a mouse instead of a duck. Now, back to Howard. Yeah. Then, um, so essentially then, um, uh, Jack Kirby teams up with Steve Gerber to make uh, the Destroyer Duck comic book as a lawsuit edition, and at the same time, Dave and Danny Sim put together a portfolio called Friends of Old Gerber, and Friends of Old, uh, and Friends of Old Gerber had different uh, uh, Destroyer Duck images inked by a lot of uh, a variety of people, and that built up about 20% of the money needed for the lawsuit to get uh, control of the Howard character, and it ended up settling out of court, cost $140,000 for Steve Gerber, and he ended up, Disney ended up getting control of the character, but Howard, uh, but Steve Gerber got, got some money as well as a piece of the Howard the Duck movie, which bombed at the box office. But in the midst of all that, the Destroyer Duck comic becomes, uh, and Jim's going to talk about that, is the, uh, the story of Destroyer Duck is essentially a fictionalized form of Steve Gerber's quest to get Howard back. Danny, why don't you talk a little bit about, since they're doing this as parody of Destroyer Duck, why that didn't, why, how is that different from the earlier example, and why didn't it have a cease and desist letter? Certainly, Destroyer Duck was definitely met both as satire, which is criti social criticism as humor standing alone from any source material, and parody. Parody is a form of fair use, and if you were at the panel before this one, you heard all about fair use, and I'm going to go into depth into it. Fair use is essentially you take a portion of a copyrighted or trademark, generally copyrighted work, and you incorporate it into a new work in such a way that it's transformative. The most uh, common form is if you do a review of a comic book, for instance, and you have some pictures from the comic book, that's fair use. You're using it as part of a new work that's commentary and it's transformative. It's not can't be mistaken for copying the original work. But the fair use statute also permits commercial use as a fair use. Now, how much you can take from an original work and turn it into a new work that is not infringing, but in fact can be protected by a separate copyright, the courts are clear there's no bright line. It's a case-by-case -case decision. And so you never know. It's, it may come down to who can make a better argument, it can be, it come down to who has more money, who can hire better lawyers, etc. So anybody tries to tell you that fair use, parody, etc. are easy, they're blind. They probably tell you that whatever they're doing is fair use. Parody is a type of fair use. Parody is where you want to take a portion of a pre-existing work and copy it, but you're doing so as a commentary on the original. So the courts say it can be in bad taste, that doesn't matter, it can kill the market for the original by ridiculing that existence, that doesn't matter, it's still protected. The question is, is it just taking enough so that it's commenting on it, or is it taking so much that they're avoiding the drudgery of coming up with something new, or they're just calling attention to themselves? Now, if you look at Destroyer Duck, it's got lots of parody in it, it's got a parody of 
Jim Shooter. It's got a parody of John Byrne. It's got a parody of every corporation by having the grab it all, own it all, drain it all, or God court. And they're all parodies of existing things, but they're all, to the extent they're taking, they're taking something like Howard the Duck, they're transforming it so much that it is unique work. Nobody could look at Destroyer Duck and mistake it for Howard the Duck or Donald Duck. It has been Jack Kirbyfied completely beyond that. There is a character in there called the Little Guy, who is a lot like Howard the Duck, who dies a few panels into the first issue. But that's a small enough piece of the copyrighted work that it's not going to upset anybody. It's clearly parody, it's clearly protected. So this is not generally going to generate any cease and desist letters as to copyright and trademark. Maybe slander or false light or something like that, but that's another thing. And again, what you have is because of the the, the the history of this and the involvement of lawyers, this is a this is a character and a comic that is almost the direct product of this legal battle. It's also interesting, I think, in this context that that it's 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 brought about, as I said, from from the, that legal battle, and, and it's it's its only purpose is the is the parody of it. Um, and then we go to almost another, it's not quite a byproduct of it, but it's interesting because in Destroy Your Duck, Marvel becomes the villain in the story. And then that plays out almost in real life, at least in Dave Sims' mind, as we'll see now it's talk about that. So again, we're talking about parody, and it's tough to get a clear threshold on when it's no longer parody and it's encroaching on a copyright. But something that a lot of lawyers can agree on is that parody is legally okay if you're using a non-licensed character's likeness one time for some sort of entertainment, you know, making fun of value. But sometimes that limit is stretched a bit. And so we see Dave Sims, he had a character in Cerebus called the Roach, and this Roach would take on different personas. A lot of them were Marvel characters. So we have an example on the top left where you see the Roach character putting on a Captain America costume, but he also has Cerebus on the cover, and there's a bit of parody. They kind of make fun of the Captain America persona. Then you go to the next character that the Roach character impersonates, and that was Moon Knight. And you see that there were three non-consecutive issues, and you see that uh, Cerebus is on one of the covers, and it wasn't consecutive. But technically, Moon Knight's the only character on the cover, so is that misrepresentation? Is that using Moon Knight to sell service? Maybe. But then we go to the next panel, or the next slide, and you see that three consecutive issues in a row, he had the Roach character dress up like Wolverine. You don't see Cerebus on any of the covers, and it's almost like that Frank Miller, uh, Wolverine type of imagery on three consecutive issues. And something that was noted was sales of each issue were really high, unusually high for Cerebus. So then Marvel sends uh, Dave Sim a cease and desist letter for using their Wolverine in the character. Which I just want to add that what becomes interesting about that is, unlike the, the earlier Howard the Duck one, we are privy to this. And the reason is because Sim puts it in the letters page, which I should have mentioned, LaBeouf does the same thing. He tweets, in, in the example I gave, when he got that uh, cease and desist, 
he tweeted it. So, so Dave Sim was like an early version of Shire LaBeouf in, in some ways. So let's talk about. Certainly, there's a couple of legal concepts that come into play here. One of them is fair use and parity. Another is what do you do when somebody is infringing, potentially infringing on your copyright, and you don't necessarily want to mess with them. Maybe, maybe you're at Marvel and you like what Dave Sin is doing with Cerebus. Maybe you want, you're concerned about bad press if you try to come down on him. But if you've got intellectual property, you have to protect it. So there's a couple of concepts that are counterparts of each other that are affirmative defenses to a copyright or trademark lawsuit. One of them is called latches, which always sounds to me like potato pancakes with cheese, but it's essentially you snooze, you lose. If you have rights, you don't assert them, you wait to assert them, you're sleeping on your rights, as the law says, and meanwhile, the other side, the person you might sue is just going on and on with it to the point where if you told them to stop, you'd prejudice them, you'd, you'd mess them up because you waited too long, then you can't assert your rights. That's latches. The other side is acquiescence, which is a version of another legal concept, which I really like this word, estoppel. It's, it, acquiescence is if you act or speak in such a way that you are conveying the impression that you're okay with this use of your copyright or trademark. If you, for instance, as Marvel allowed Howard the Duck to go forward with some redesigns, if they didn't act after that, if they went back on that, they could be seen as acquiescing in what they were doing. If you are conveying to the junior user, the person who's alleged, allegedly infringing, that you're allowing it to go forward and they rely on your statements and lack of action to enforce your rights to the detriment, if you, if you, again, if you waited too long to enforce it, then you might not have a case. So that's why Marvel, seeing Dave Sim use Wolver Roach, not just as an incidental character, but on three consecutive covers, would send a cease and desist letter, and they're not just being just mean corporate bad guys, they are trying to protect what is, at this point, Marvel's bread and butter, the Wolverine character. Parody, as I said, if it's, if it's done to comment on the original, and you're taking a portion of the protected work to comment on that protected work, that's fine, that's protected. If you're using it just to sell your product, because you're not coming up with something new, you're just latching onto something popular and pasting it onto your product, that's a lot less defensible. So. It seems to me that Marvel's in a pretty good position here that Sim is using, overusing this parody to sell his product, and maybe whether or not they win in court, it's a good idea to send a season to assist with. That brings up another point, my last point before we go to something entertaining, which is that cease and desist letters aren't always backed up by the law. There's rules such as Federal Rule 11, which say that you can't file a lawsuit that isn't backed up in some good faith way by the law and the facts. Cease and desist letter, you can represent anything you want. You can have not have a leg to stand on and act like you're, you're sitting pretty. You can misrepresent the law, you can misrepresent the facts, etc. And if the person it's sent to doesn't know any better, 
they can be crushed. That's why cease and desist letters, sometimes they've got merit, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they have a bark, which is worse than the, the potential eventual bite. So, no, unlike the Howard the Duck example, no stories get written, incorporated into the Cerebus narrative because of the cease and desist. But comics have changed at this point, and Cerebus is a very different book from a Marvel Howard the Duck in that it's one person and he gets to call the shots. So what Sim does at this point is, is his letter pages are as much a part of the book as the narrative is. And this becomes a major issue within the, the, the letters pages of Serapis. He, uh, he doesn't just quote, he prints the entire cease and desist letter, but he goes into great detail about how Denny, notice it doesn't say Mr. Simmons is Miss Sim because Denny Lambert is the publisher uh, or the editor of it at the time. And so she acquiesces immediately and says, oh, we won't do that again. We'll, we'll move on and not do Wolf and Roach. And David doesn't agree. He's outraged at it. In fact, he, he responds doing something on, for a fan in that way. But so this dissension between he and his wife plays out on the letters page to some degree. Uh, this is shortly before they actually split. So we have this narrative going on as a result of people like us, of lawyers, who feed this, and then it, we, we see it played out on the letters pages and as part of what is developing as the Dave Sim personality that comes into play more and more as the, uh, as the comic goes on. But that's not it, only the only thing, because it does play in terms of a narrative and a creation, but not by Dave Sim. Marvel has some fun with this in terms of the creation of Spider-Ham. Now, look at, look at Spider-Ham, who comes out around the same, shortly after this. If you look at it, this is Cerebus in a spider suit, basically. And so what Marvel is saying is, well, how do you like it when, when you get this treatment? And they, they stick Cerebus in a spider costume for and it runs for 10 issues or more, and is, is a beloved character sort of even to this day. Uh, Sim thought it was pretty neat. He thought that's a good way, much better than sending lawyers in. This is poking fun at me, and I really, I actually think that's interesting. So when Ultimate Spider-Man hits 100, Dave Sim volunteers to do a variant co uh, cover where, I don't know if you can see on the right side is Sim's cover, where he puts Cerebus in the spider suit as Spider-Ham. And so we, we again have an example of how it, it, it moves over into the ripple effect of actually being in the comics world. So um, now Mark Greenberg is, uh, is an attorney that deals with a lot of these things. And so we're glad to have him. And we'd like to hear your perspective on the cease and desist and how it can be used as far as creativity and intimidation and all these other concepts. I want to follow up a little bit on what Dan uh, said, and that has to do with the use, it's often referred to as the strategic use of cease and desist letters. So oftentimes, one of the things that I've seen a lot of is uh, you get a cease and desist letter regarding trademark. And the party says, you violated my trademark, you're infringing my trademark, we're going to sue you into the Stone Age. And the first thing I do is I contact the trademark office and do the research and find out if they actually have a registered trademark, and about 50% of the time they don't. 
It's a bluff. Similarly, we've had situations where uh, a copyright is, gonna, is about to expire or has in fact expired, and the prior holder of that copyright sends a cease and desist letter and says, I hold the copyright. Well, you did, but you no longer do. So the, the sort of the lesson, the takeaway from that is if you get an assertion that somebody is a copyright holder or a trademark holder and they're uh, sending a cease and desist letter, don't check what they've actually said. It is, is what they've said actually true? Or in fact, uh, is it a case where they are bluffing or advancing an effort to try to protect rights that they, they don't have? I've been watching with great interest as something that, that, uh, that I, I'm, I'm not sure that this is the reason, but I noticed a couple of years ago that the Disney company started using a film clip, a little, a little animation clip of Steamboat Willie as a brand. And I'm, I think that's great that they, that they want to identify that, but I wonder if that's motivated in part by the upcoming expiration of Mickey Mouse's copyright. And one of the areas that there's a, a lot of debate among uh, IP lawyers is can you migrate the, the, your copyright rights into trademark and try to get an extended run of protection since copyright does ultimately expire whereas trademark does not. So there's some interesting things that you have to pay attention to in these contests. And so one of the things I've seen sort of on the other side of this as a strategic use is some companies actually take the position that receiving, particularly small companies, that receiving a cease and desist from a large corporation is a badge of honor. And so it gets posted on their website and publicized uh, extensively. Hey, guess what? Big company A, B, or C just sent us a cease and desist letter. Here it is, and it's, up, and it's held up for ridicule. So companies have to be careful in terms of what kind of publicity they're going to get when they send out a cease and desist letter. It's no longer viewed as a private communication between parties. It's going to be available and or posted for the general public. So that kind of leads me to, the, to uh, I wanted to add just one or two comments on the subject of working with lawyers in the context of cease and desist letters. So the first question that comes up sometimes is when you get a cease and desist letter, should you hire a lawyer to help with a response? And I've been a big believer all along in what I refer to as holistic law. Try to get in there early and get a hold of something before it gets out of control. Ignoring the cease and desist letter will, in at least half of the uh, cases, ultimately lead to you getting sued. And that, get, that ends up being a much more expensive proposition. So the holistic law context is get a hold of an attorney up front quickly because oftentimes the cease and desist letter, as has been the point in, in this panel, is used really to initiate a discussion, and possibly sometimes to reach some kind of a modification. This happens a lot in trademarks. I'll give you one quick example of this. Some years ago, I represented a record a label called TNT Records. And TNT Records uh, was uh, Digital Underground, uh, the Humpty Dance, that kind of stuff. That was, that, that was their genre, rap and hip hop. And I filed a trademark registration for um, TNT Records, and I got a call from Turner Network Television. <laughs> and they said, you can't use TNT. We own TNT. And I said, really, Ted Turner's going into rap and hip hop? Cool, that'll be, that's news. I said, well, no. As the dialogue 
went forward, we ultimately reached a resolution in which we said, we won't go into television or anything that Turner does. You guys agree you won't go into rap and hip hop, and we'll continue to use this trademark, but we'll limit it just to this kind of genre. That was a good workout. So oftentimes, that cease and desist letter can be a precursor to a negotiated settlement, but you're not going to know that if you ignore it or uh, do duck and cover, and then company figures, well, they, they don't want to negotiate. I guess we got to sue them. And so a lawsuit ends up being filed out of a misunderstanding. And that would, that would be really a negative. I want to add something to that because there was, that's a perfect example of this. There was a, um, a few years ago, Vertigo sent a letter to a, a creator, Andrea Grant, because she was using a character named Minx, and they had had a Peter Milligan series. And when she uh, said, this was in an interview, she said, I received a very polite cease and desist letter a few weeks ago saying they had trademarked the word Minx and they liked me not to use it in my title. She did a couple of things and then they worked out something. And she said, I have my lawyers dealing with it. They're communicating with DC and sent a letter out today, so that's nice. And I guess there's been a little flurry in the press, so just so DC knows, I'm not completely willing to cave in. This happens all the time. A lot of creators get these kinds of letters. I'm not the only one. A lot of writers and artists are very confused about the difference between copyright and trademark and the laws, of course, vary from country to country. A lot of people get these letters and get nervous and give up. I'm fortunate to have good lawyers and makes it something I've been using for a very long time. You can't trademark something and then not use it for many years. You can't just buy out every title you think one day might want to do something. So I thought that was a great yeah. capsule of that. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's exactly the point is, unfortunately, and there's an awful lot of discussion about this, lawyers are expensive. But in a lot of these contexts, you, you, you know, it's that holistic law concept I'm talking about. And I tell clients all the time, you can pay me now to help negotiate a resolution of case, and I'll buy a suit or two. And unlike how I dress for Comic-Con, I, no, I like fancy suits. <laughs> or you can pay me it, when the case goes into litigation, and I'll buy a car. If it goes to appeal, I'll buy a house. <laughs> I like nice suits, I like houses, up to you. So it really makes sense to try to avail yourself of the legal resources as quickly as you can. And also, at least in California, we have California Lawyers for the Arts, which is a nonprofit organization that helps artists deal with issues like this. And so it's really worthwhile getting that help as quickly as possible. If you are going to do this, though, one other cautionary word I would, I would express with respect to getting an attorney to respond to a cease and desist letter, the entertainment law business is a really attractive, fun area to work in. So lots of lawyers want to do this, and there's lots of wannabe entertainment lawyers out there who haven't really got the experience to do the work. And I can tell you from personal experience, it often helps if you're working with, with an entertainment lawyer who is known in the industry and has a reputation, you will get a better result. So vet your lawyers at least as, as carefully as you vet people who cut your hair. Do a little research, find out whether the person has experience and is somebody that can really help you. Okay, so uh, we're going to open it up to questions. And don't just think about the legal aspect of it, but think about the narrative aspect too and the interplay between the two. Yes? Um, did Disney ever have anything to say about um, MLJ's super duck? Is that he has said to the 
I don't know the answer to that, but I would say Disney was was very, very sensitive to its characters at that time, partially because Howard wasn't the first thing to ruffle their feathers, but the, it, the, the thing about it was they had come off of the Air Pirates issue and also Wally Wood's infamous uh, picture, so there was they had gotten slapped in the face a couple of times, so even though Howard wasn't as offensive, they were going to kind of let it go, but the, the European division just couldn't handle it. They were actually in competition with Howard the Duck, so it became a money issue more than anything else with the Marvel one. Oh, okay, in the red. I brought up a point about uh, putting up a cease and desist letter on the website or publishing it. Nowadays, with emails and there's a confidentiality note on the bottom, is it still okay to go ahead and just put a cease and desist letter on Facebook or something like that without getting sued by the attorneys and Senate? I would say it's perfectly okay. I think we're all in agreement on that. Once in a while, lawyers uh, attempt to register copyright in their work. I have seen that happen with, with some briefing, but it's kind of a tough road to go because you're, uh, even in the brief context, you're sending this out to a third party. And particularly in the cease and desist context, you don't have a confidentiality agreement with that, work, with that party. So, no, I, don't, I, I think you, uh, people can go ahead and post them. I've not seen anybody try to, try to sue somebody who posted it for violating any type of confidentiality. If it then turns into settlement negotiations, that's a different thing. That is confidential, and a lawyer can get sanctioned for it. And good lawyers just send a notice of confidentiality as a header on the what? On the sub blood. But not a cease and desist. No, right. Thank you. Um, going back to Disney providing power to that with a new image, is that, at any point, did that mean that Disney would now own the new power to that? I mean, that's how far Disney would own it. Right. They own it now? No, the, not at Yeah, all. but at the time it was just to say comply with these and we won't pursue any further action. And John Romita Sr. felt it was really convenient, actually. He acquiesced immediately and said, hey, this is great, they gave us this, so we're just going to do it like this and stay out of trouble. So it wasn't that Disney owned it. But what is funny is if you see Howard's image in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie at the end, he's kind of a weird-looking Howard. Like, he's got the pants and his bill's all weird. Like So you almost kind of think, like, they have long-term memory on this image, and there it is for everyone to see that this is actually the official Howard the Duck now. And I, I think that's funny how similar that, that Howard is to that 1970s letter. Plus, they really, really don't want him to look like Donald Duck. Yeah. You can now, th that provision is, is default because of the purchase of Disney, so now you can do a Howard the Duck that looks as ugly as that, and it's, and it's okay. But before that, it was, this was the Howard the Duck, and that's why Gerber turned him into a mouse. So a um, number of the major companies like Marvel actively embrace the, the fan dumb uh, out there. They have a Marvel Becoming series about major cosplayers and how they produce their costumes. They're running their own contest with prizes. And uh, the costumes themselves may not be copyrightable, but a lot of the blue ones, the decorations on them, the masks, those things are uh, subject to copyright. But you're talking about latches and estoppel. If they're actively encouraging the fan use of materials that 
you know, go beyond poorly available, uh, available from fair use. Would they have a difficult time trying to put it back in the box if there was like one particular instance where you know they didn't like one thing that somebody was doing? Ask J.K. Rowling. What I've seen is that as a growing trend from large entertainment companies is they publish guidelines. And they say, these are the lines. If you want to do fan-created content, I'm, uh, I find this a, a great interest. I'm currently writing a book on fandom and the law. If you want to create content based on our characters, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. And as long as you stay within the lines, it's fine. If you go outside the lines, we will sue you for copyright infringement. We'll sue you for violating our guidelines, because oftentimes the guidelines themselves arguably go beyond what uh, fair use would allow. But it's a, here's the easy path, and here's the tough path. To quote the famous Clint Eastwood movie, do you feel lucky, punk? Uh, and so it then becomes a question of which, which direction you want to go. And so that's how they responded to that, to the issue that you raised. Yes. If you guys are going to hire an entertainment lawyer, and you're looking through entertainment lawyers, resumes, or whatever you guys need to do, are there any red flags that stick out that you can immediately be like, nope, not this guy? Yeah, Mark would know that. Well, yeah. Um, there's a wonderful website, at least in the state of California. We're very, very lucky. Not all states have this. The state of California has calbar.org.org. With every lawyer in the state of California is required to be ready to provide the state bar with their name and address and stay in contact. So you can look up any lawyer in California on calbar.org, and one of the things that you will see is whether that lawyer has ever been disciplined by the state bar for. So just at, at, out of curiosity, the other day I looked up Michael Avenatti, <laughs> and he currently has two state bar complaints going against him for violating client, uh, I think it was uh, by appropriating client money. So you can find out if a lawyer, I mean, that's the easiest way to find a red flag. If the lawyer's been disciplined or had a problem with the bar, an ethical or professional problem, it will show up on calbar.org. Yeah. Yes. Would a, a public persona, like an actual person as compared to a creative character, be Considered uh, their trademark, their brand, or, or would it be more of a copyright? So, with Michael Stormy Daniels, I've brought on right. brand by just being herself. So, would, so if you wrote a work with a person who is a brand, so to speak, what kind of issues? Well, that's right, a publicity law. That goes into the area of what's called right of publicity law. People who are celebrities or even semi celebrities, that my friend Danny Fingeroff once had a great phrase, niche celebrity. Which I thought was a marvelous concept. If you're in any of those categories and someone appropriates your name, image, and likeness, in California you have a protectable right that you can bring action for. And it's just by the same token, any, any uh, actor or actress who gets involved in a, in a project signs away their rights of publicity to the production company for that particular production. There's a whole body of law on right of publicity. Uh, involved in that. Okay, we uh, we have to stop and I thank everybody in the panel.